Welcome back to the Fordham IPLJ podcast. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. This week, we're proud to bring you our third installment of the 25th annual IPLJ Symposium, Political Non-Neutrality in the Press. This panel discusses the deficiency of presenting multiple viewpoints in the press. As news organizations become more polarized, it appears the public grows more and more polarized as well. The Fairness Doctrine, introduced in 1949, required the presentation of news and public issues in a neutral way by requiring representation of multiple opinions or viewpoints of an issue. While this doctrine was limited to broadcast, this panel explores how a similar requirement could apply across all press organizations. The panel was moderated by Professor Corey Brettschneider and features Cahill gordon Rindell, Senior Counsel Susan Buckley, and Mark Conrad, Associate Professor at Fordham University's Gabelli School of Business. This event was recorded live at the Fordham University McNally Amphitheater on Friday, February 9th, 2018. To see the video from this panel, please visit our website at FordhamIPLJ.org. We're going to focus on the question of uh, bias in media and the question of whether or not government can do anything at all to regulate that. Uh, and there are a couple of questions here. Uh, one is, if government is going to do something, given the modern context, what would that be? Uh, one possibility would be to return to the past, to take the fairness doctrine um, of uh, the past that was abandoned uh, during the Reagan administration. Uh, which broadly said uh, you have to uh, be neutral in your coverage, and that means inviting speakers who uh, might disagree with the perspective that you've uh, discussed, if you attack someone, giving them the right to respond. Uh, all of these were part of the Fairness Doctrine. There was a challenge to the Fairness Doctrine, of course, in the 1960s, and in a case called Red Lion, the Supreme Court of the United States said that there is no First Amendment free speech ban on the Fairness Doctrine. It's consistent with our free speech law. Uh, but their reasoning, if I looked at it last night, if you look at it, it's really striking how much the media has changed. Uh, it relies on a scarcity theory. Uh, basically, there are three networks. Of course, there are only three, right? Uh, and uh, given that, there just is not that much spectrum out there. And so we have to allow government to distribute a scarce resource uh, in a way that might otherwise look like a free speech violation. Now, the reason I say it's striking is because obviously there aren't three networks. There's no internet in 1969 when the case comes down. Uh, there's no Facebook. Uh, so the issues, of course, are very different. So have things changed? Is it still possible to regulate? And another question, I think, for this panel that I know both panelists are eager to address is whether or not that decision was right at all, either in its own time or in ours, uh, to say that there was a consistency of the fairness doctrine and the First Amendment free speech right. Uh, so these are all questions that we're going to talk about. Let me just first briefly introduce uh, our panelists. Uh, we're lucky enough to have Susan Buckley uh, with us, uh, who has litigated many of these cases uh, and represented uh, major uh, figures uh, in media, um, uh, major uh, media institutions, including uh, CBS, The New York Times, um, and along with uh, Floyd Abrams is uh, a leading expert um, in this area. Uh, she might also say something about her other interests that she has litigation experience in, which I think is a deeply related area, although it might not seem obvious at first, which is regulation uh, in the uh, context of campaigns and uh, the political process. Uh, we're also, uh, uh, and I should say she's uh, senior counsel at uh, Cahill, Gordon, and uh, Rendell. 
Uh, we also have Professor Mark uh, Conrad, uh, who's an associate professor uh, in the Fordham University Business School. Uh, and he's also written about issues in media. He teaches a course on uh, media and the law um, and uh, also uh, directs uh, the sports business concentration uh, in the uh, business school. Uh, he's uh, published books, including uh, the book of sports, off the field, in the office, on the news, uh, and a plethora of articles. Uh, so I'm sure uh, we'll learn a lot from his remarks. So the way that we've just arranged the panel is both panelists will speak for about 10 minutes, and then we'll uh, have a conversation, and then certainly open it up for comments and questions from the audience about how to deal with this uh, difficult problem of uh, bias and, and media. Uh, so with that, uh, Susan Buckley, I'll turn it over to you. Um, <clears throat> good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm on, on the question of is the media biased or is the media becoming more biased or less neutral? Um, I'm not an originalist uh, thinker, uh, but I think on this question, uh, it's kind of instructive to go back to the time when the Constitution was being adopted, or at least start there, or at least look there. Uh, and if you look back at the role of the press in the 1700s revolutionary America, um, the notion of political neutrality would have been laughable to them. I mean, we're all, we're all knowledgeable about all things Hamilton. Uh, around now, and um, we probably all learned from that book, if we didn't know it before, that Hamilton had his newspapers that he wrote in, whether anonymously or not, that Jefferson bought newspapers or that he wrote in, whether anonymously or not. But the notion of the press being a neutral thing would have very much entertained our founding fathers. I'm not going to put a lot of weight on that. As I said, I'm not an originalist. Uh, by nature, but the notion that the press has somehow recently become more biased than we've ever heard is, is just not right. I think it's different, but it's, it's just not right to say this is a new thing. I mean, if you fast forward to World War II, President Roosevelt literally was on the verge of sending U.S. troops to take over the Chicago Tribune building because he was so ticked at them. And the Tribune was anti, anti, anti Roosevelt. Um, he didn't do it. His staff finally persuaded him not to. Um, there's a, a, a study done by, in the Harvard Crimson in the mid-50s rating all the newspapers in the country, for whether they were liberal or conservative. And 80% of them were listed as right-leaning which I think would surprise most people today who probably think that it's more left-leaning on the newspaper front. Uh, but it's not necessarily so. Um, newspapers in the past, think Hearst, for example, could be motiv motivated economically by their owners to speak in more conservative views than you would otherwise think of today. Um, my only point is um, this is not a place in history that is wildly you know, unusual. It's different, but there has not, you know, there has not been uh, a time in American history where they haven't been talking about press bias or not. Now, why is it different? I think it's different um, because instead of following an economic model that you want to reach the most readers you can, which would presumably force you to be more 
um, accommodating to all sides in your coverage, you know, we now end up in sort of this niche marketplace where um, people want to speak to small audiences or just these kinds of audiences or those kinds of audiences, which therefore can force or permit, if you look at it that way, uh, uh, more narrow perspectives. Um, advertisers weren't looking for niche audiences 20 years ago, but they are today. And anyway, um, that brings me around to the question that was put on the table, which is if, if one assumes uh, that today the press is too biased one way or the other, can the government step in and impose something like a fairness doctrine requiring coverage of both sides of an issue, for example? And in my mind, the answer is so clearly no. Um, uh, it, it's, it's impossible, I believe. One reason is because the fairness doctrine, I think, was unconstitutional way back then, although the Supreme Court disagreed, it is certainly unconstitutional now. And the reason is, as the professor intimated, in the broadcast industry, <clears throat> the government has to play some role. The government has to play some role because the radio spectrum over which they broadcast is narrow. The problem they found when they first passed the Radio Act was everybody was interfering with each other because they're on all these different airways. So they had to make licenses and say, CBS, local CBS, you get this airway. NBC, you get this one. ABC, you get this one. So they had to get somebody to grant licenses, hence the FCC, uh, and, and give them to people. So the government had to take that step. Uh, and in passing the Fairness Doctrine, uh, the court would later say, because the spectrum is limited and the government has to have a role and not everyone who wants to have a television station can, you're going to have to take some responsibility to be fair, balanced, air the views of opposing candidates and um, viewpoints. Uh, the spectrum scarcity rationale, which is what we all called it, only applies to broadcasters. It has no, nothing to do with cable, which isn't broadcast over the airwaves. Obviously, it has nothing to do with print medium. And most importantly, it has nothing to do with communications on the internet. So it's only the broadcasters that have to have this regulation in order to keep them from screaming at each other's ears. So the spectrum scarcity rationale doesn't apply to any speech, by definition, uh, other than broadcast speech. This is why we now have the absurd situation that broadcasters are subject to the FCC's indecency rules. They can't say George Carlin's seven dirty words on broadcast stations, while cable and internet and Netflix and HBO and all those people are not. So it might give you a, an inkling as to why the broadcasters are falling behind in award season, because they can't push some more uh, provocative programs. Anyway, um, my view is since spectrum scarcity rationale does not apply anymore, its justification is gone, and the justification being no, everybody needs a place to speak, and we only have this much space to speak in. That's gone with, with cable, the internet, every other way you can speak. And therefore, even if the fairness doctrine 
could be said to have been constitutional when it was first adopted, and the Supreme Court said it was, with the caveat that things might change. Things have changed so much that I don't think it could withstand serious First Amendment scrutiny now. And I'll stop talking so that Great. a good professor can have his say. Well, thank you very much, and there is much that I would add to agree with what was said. I think it was a very good summary of what the status of First Amendment law would be, hypothetically, if 48 years later, 49 years later, the Supreme Court would hear uh, such a case had the Fairness Doctrine still been around. It was actually eliminated by uh, administrative regulatory fiat in the 19, late 1980s. And then there were some residuals a few years later, but you know, not to get into super detail, it's pretty much gone today. Uh, I think one thing to, to, that I would differ a little bit is that at the time that Redline was decided in 1969, there was a greater media concentration so the voices that were accessible to the public generally were fewer in terms of broadcast stations. Cable was its infancy. Internet was ARPANET that the Pentagon sort of came up and controlled. Uh, so a lot of the disruptors that we have seen since then uh, certainly were not um, in existence. So you know, the broadcast stations understood that they did get a valuable license in return for no money. Uh, and this was part of the deal that they had to abide by. The Fairness Doctrine really were two rules. One, that there had to be discussion of controversial issues of public importance, which has sort of been downplayed. And the second part, indeed, which was said correctly, was uh, that there had to be um, opposing viewpoints, or reasonable opposing viewpoints, on issues of public concern. Basically, if the station had an editorial then someone else who opposed the editorial could go on and had the right to do that. You know, the Red Lion case involved, by the way, some uh, one Billy James Hargis, who was an evangelical uh, preacher at the time, uh, and apparently trashed an author of a book who wrote a book about uh, about uh, his favorite presidential candidate, Barry Goldwater, and really basically trashed him. So he wanted access to the station, the station said no, and ultimately the rest is history. So the facts were pretty compelling on the side of the one who wanted to respond to, and the Supreme Court, I think, looked at that uh, as well. Uh, certainly in retrospect, and certainly in the years gone by, we have a very different universe, and to have just a rule allowing over-the-air broadcasters and nobody else you know, would be under-inclusive, and certainly have the rule today at all would be most likely unconstitutional. Uh, again, uh, possibly a viewpoint discriminatory issue as well. So I would tend to agree that this would not be good law today uh, in the way it was constituted. Uh, I would also say, however, we have a much more fragmented period. It's true it's not unique in terms of American history, but the very fact is one, you know, who's a journalist? is going to be a question, is every blogger a journalist? You know, it's a more philosophical question, and there's a lot, m many, many more ways to get information uh, today. And I think the best way to look at it, you know, just ask, I ask my students, and certainly ask my son who's a teenager, where does he get the information? And it's not gonna be from a newspaper, it's not gonna be from the evening news, it's generally going to be uh, online, Facebook, Instagram, uh, YouTube, Etc. So we have to think what who would even be covered 
under such a regimen today. That's number one. And number two, you know, which still is troubling, that there are not a lot of siphons, a lot of um, uh, editorial control over what is posted. And you know, hence, all we have to do is look at last year's election and look simply what's online. And a lot of it is, you know, is cringeworthy, and some of it could be more than that. So I think there is certainly an issue here. I don't know if an access rule today is going to be the way to do it, at least in the classic sense. You know, we will get net neutrality a little bit differently. Uh, I also want to add one thing, if I can. When the industry talks about First Amendment rights, and the communications industry are really big boys and big girls versus big boys and big girls, there are very few small players that really have the levers in Washington. So, for example, the NAB would certainly say, look, look absolutely, one for same First Amendment rights as print media, and uh, the court, by the way, rejected the fairness doctrine in print media five years later in the Tornillo case, in effect. But when they talked about mandatory coverage on cable television, the so-called must-carry rules, they were running to courts to say, and running to the FCC saying, we need this protection, when the cable industry said, hey, look, that could be a First Amendment violation on our end. Why do we have to carry your stations? So uh, I do feel looking at it, on, when the industry talks about it, you know, they're talking about it to some extent, you know, from their interest too, because the NAB was fairly quiet about the First Amendment interests of cable if they had existed in this case, the Supreme Court in a long, two decisions actually said uh, there were, but uh, it was uh, an answer, it was not under the strict scrutiny standard, so the must-carry rules were allowed. So there, there is a little bit of gamesmanship when you're on the Washington side when you're dealing with some of that stuff. So uh, thank you both for these excellent opening remarks. And uh, I mean, you both, I think, emphasize how different the world is now from the one in which Red Lion is decide was decided. And and one way that might cut, as um, I, I think you both seem to agree, is to suggest that you just can't apply, you know, uh, in in the form that it existed, the fairness doctrine from the 1960s, and take it, uh, or 1969 is when mm -hmm. Red Lion was decided, mm -hmm. and take it and pose it here. It just looks like a different kind of world. So let me ask a, a broad question just to begin mm -hmm. with about what might be done about what many people think, well, I'll just say rightly, I think, are the pressing moments in media at the time. Now, one is, uh, and I'll just use the phrase that you've all heard millions of times, the worry about fake news. Now, what is fake news? That means all sorts of things, right? Sometimes it's the President of the United States talking about your former client, the New York Times, in the context where he doesn't like the criticism. And so that's one mm -hmm. kind of fake news. But another kind of fake news is uh, actually, you know, documented instances of um, uh, hackers or people writing uh, articles that are knowingly and deliberately false. This happened during the election in order to get hits on Facebook and on the internet in order to make money from ads. Now that's a different kind of fake news that actually is empirically false, right? Mm -hmm. And not just false, but in intentionally false. So. The dilemma, I guess, that we face is taking into consideration certainly the First Amendment constraints, the, the lack of fit with the modern world and the fairness doctrine. What, if anything, can be done about this, at least the second kind of real fake news? Are there forms of regulation that, that could be creative 
either self-imposed by media organizations, uh, by government regulators, um, by internet providers, which is now a, a, a kind of different level of analysis, or companies like Facebook, uh, to, to deal with this very real problem. Just open the, ask both of you that, that question. <clears throat> I think, I, I certainly will remember the day I was sitting at my computer and popped up the ad which told me that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump for president. <laughs> um, and I stared at it and said, now this probably tops them all. But we learned after the election that many Catholics thought that the Pope had endorsed Donald Trump for presidency. Now that, that is frightening and scary. Uh, I mean, that's got to be the prime example of fake news in this election, uh, at least for me. Uh, so one answer to that is, how, how do we deal with that? One answer to that is education. That's one. I mean, um, a lot of people have, um, I think a lot of viewers and listeners uh, have not been educated on the difference between sort of editorial, editorializing opinion pieces, news pieces. I mean. I think some people think the New York Times is you know, way left liberal. Well, maybe editorially it is, but it's very highly considered in terms of, of its news reporting, of trying to be fair. Uh, it's certainly classically considered the fairest, uh, or was from ever and ever and ever. In this world we live in, it's harder to tell. The Times tells us, here's an editorial, here's an opinion piece, here's an analytical piece, and here's a straight news piece. You can just read it on the paper, you know who's talking. But when we turn on MSNBC, is, are they always opinion pieces? Are they sometimes news? We, we, those of us who look at journalism can tell, but I don't know that the average um, teenager or uh, maybe even college student is sophisticated enough in the ways of reading and learning about uh, how to uh, digest uh, news and information that we might want them to be. I mean, I think in terms of government regulation, how would that happen, really? Are we really gonna give the FCC the power to tell us what we can say and not say about the issues of the day? Uh, certainly all of the press decisions in the 60s and 70s would say, Government doesn't have any role, any role. That's, that's, what, that's what the first amendment says, Congress shall make no law. That's as simple as that. What, what, what don't you understand about the term no law? So I, my biggest fear about regulating things like fake news through the government is I don't, we don't want the government to have that power. We really want the president's commissioners of the SEC going through and applying some, well, this wasn't fair enough, this wasn't real. I do not, I do not think so. And what about just taking your own suggestion about the importance of labeling uh, a regulation from the FEC that asked providers to do that, that said, you know, try to label what you're doing. Or alternatively, legislation from Congress. These are all things that are in the air. I think people don't know what to do, but one possibility is to demand some kind of labeling from maybe not the companies themselves, but from the providers. So have Facebook uh, labeled, for instance. That's one thing they might do voluntarily. Another possibility is that there could be government compulsion when it comes to that sort of regulation. So just taking your own mm -hmm. idea. Uh, you know, on the one, I mean, here I'll just, just ask one follow-up question that, that just to lay it out for people so that you could see it. I mean, one question is whether or not that forced labeling would itself be viewpoint regulation. Mm -hmm. And yes. that, 
I don't know that that's mm -hmm. obvious, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what is viewpoint regulation is saying you've got to say, uh, you know, America is great, or you've got to say uh, this country is bad. You know, those are viewpoints. Now, what about this sort of other kind of regulation that says you need to label, uh, you know, what you're doing? Basically? Is that mm -hmm. a violation of the First Amendment? Do you want to respond to that or have any thoughts about it? I, it makes me queasy and ill, um, <laughs> only because I don't want, I, I can't, I'm, I'm back, my head is back at the FCC watching guys in little green hats go, no, yes, no, <laughs> yes, and, and uh, that's the least of what, what uh, the least of what we want. You think it is report regulation too? I'm not sure I would even put that label on it, but mm -hmm. I know I don't want those green little hats telling me what I can and cannot call my editorial. Um, certainly, you know, the Society of Professional Journalists, other organizations have codes that um, many press organizations abide by and uh, agree to uh, follow, which are very aspirational and, and um, they take quite seriously and they better because they're used against them if they ever get sued for violating them in court. Uh, and those organizations and news News and newspapers, publishers who comply with them are, are the ones that you would consider to be the best in the country. Um, the more people that would do that, that's fine, but that's not where the fake news is coming from. Mm -hmm. Right. So let, let me ask Susan just one more follow-up, and then, Mark, I'll ask you a similar question. But mm -hmm. what if the regulation was not of the, of the media organizations but of the provider? I mean, so the, the response, I think, from the pro-regulation people is, I think, as you said, it's not necessarily the regulation of a viewpoint. And we're at a point where we have these traditional media organizations, which could be, in the past, trusted to self-police, and the market could basically take care of itself, mixed with Corey's news organization that mm -hmm. is spewing out fake, intentionally fake stories. Mm -hmm. And so the argument is we need some, not viewpoint regulation, but some sort of meta-regulation that doesn't impose a particular viewpoint maybe not on the news organizations, but on Facebook to tell us, you know, okay, yeah, this is the New York Times, they comply with a set of journalistic standards. This is some person writing from Bulgaria. Well, there's nothing wrong with Facebook imposing those conditions. Right. No, they're about government on Facebook? Is they're, that not, also? they're not the government, but, right. um, you know, Facebook now has certain qualities it will kick you off for or not kick you off right. for. Um, so if they want to start going down the road of being police, which they've tried to avoid for so many years, um, they have that path to take. Um, and government it, imposing that standard on Facebook? I, I just don't think so. Think, think, about, think about the very interesting case of a couple of years ago, United States against Alvarez. That was the case where a man boasted that he had won the military uh, Medal of Honor, the, the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the highest award given uh, by our country to military men. Well, this guy, Alvarez, had never won the Presidential Medal of Freedom, but he told everybody that he did. And he was then prosecuted under a criminal statute, which made it a crime to lie about receiving military medals that you didn't receive. Who knew we had a statute for everything, right? <clears throat> the case, uh, he was convicted. He really had no defenses under the statute. The case went up to the Supreme Court, and the issue was, can the government punish speech that is just because it's false? And in one of the most 
controversial decisions in a while, the court held no. And they, they uh, blew up his conviction uh, and uh, Mr. Alvarez Vitell to go. Basically, everybody, the guys on the United States side had argued, there's lots of opinions out there, Justice is saying, that there's no good that comes of false speech, that false speech is not something we care about. And the court, court said, but just because it's false doesn't mean we can ban it, which has, I think, a lot to say about when is the government allowed to come in and say, no more fake news here? Well, it's, it's really difficult to come up with a easy solution. It's obvious. I have a couple of ideas, though, on the governmental side. And they could be controversial. I don't agree with them, but I'm throwing them out. Digital Millennium Copyright Act, the DMCA, has, was enacted about 20-some-odd years ago to protect internet service providers from copyright and defamation suits if they take down materials quickly. That was a time when they were generally smaller, less powerful. Do you amend that law? Do you change that law to possibly make them responsible for defamatory content that appears, let's say, on their websites? Wow. Possibly. I mean, yeah, wow, I know. But there actually, there's some thought about doing that. Um, it's not directly a First Amendment issue, of course, because you still have the New York Times standard. But the industry did get an immunity from that, too. They got a governmental benefit. Do you think that governmental benefit should stay? I'm not sure, you know, one way or the other. So, but I'm throwing it out. Uh, we won one particular idea. Uh, the second idea is, at least in, you know, um, you know non-governmentally, but sort of like the movie industry, you have an association of as many websites, web holders, you know, ISPs as possible, and have some kind of retraction rule. Basically, somebody claims, look, I've been maligned. You know, we're not going to go to court and go through the difficulties of defamation or privacy and say, hey, but retract it if it's a commentary. You know, it could be something, you know, pos a possibility. Many newspapers have that anyway. They're not mandated by government, of course, but they'll say, look, they'll put a retraction in there. You know, they, it's the error page. You know, you, sometimes you see that. You know, some possibility could um, be there, but it's not going to cure the problem. And the problem is this so much out there and so much potential. You know, education is, is an ideal, but a lot of people that are online are very, you know, that watch this stuff or read this stuff are very impressionable. Especially if you look at the demographics of often who would be online and they're younger people. I mean, that's where you normally see a lot, not all, but a lot. And I can tell you firsthand that because uh, as a parent, you know, I hear that some of the stuff you know, they're reading and said, well, what is this? You've got to be kidding me. And we'll have to talk about it. There's no way that's true. You know, the, the, again, the Pope uh, endorsing Trump kind of thing. But it, it's, it's, you know, if I re really had an answer, I mean, you know, we, it would be <laughs> solve some problems. So one thing uh, that we read about in the beginning, but that I think we should, we should continue to probe, is the question of scarcity. And the model of three networks, of course, and the scarcity that comes from that is of the past. But as we look to the future, there, there's a different kind of scarcity or different kinds of scarcities that we might see within social media. So I wanted to just ask you uh, a couple of questions about cases that I, I, I was going to say that we might, I think we will see in the future, um, that relate to this uh, area of law. Uh, the first is uh, when it comes to Twitter, uh, which 
you know, in many ways is a sort of new media organization, I guess you could call it. We're just unsure how it's going to fit in these categories. And the question of blocking. So uh, the President of the United States has a Twitter account at POTUS. He also has a personal uh, Donald Trump uh, account. I won't advertise it for you. Uh, but the uh, question has come up as he, from the official account and from his personal account, blocks people, whether or not there's a First Amendment right of people to access to the Twitter account. Any thoughts about that and whether we can take this, you know, series of cases about newspapers and television stations and analogize to think about um, whether or not litigants might bring, um, now it's individuals bringing cases against, against either Twitter or the president uh, himself. Well, I know, I know the Knight Institute at Columbia has brought a suit, I think it's against the president. Um, for kicking uh, people off of his Twitter account. Yeah. Um, and I think that's still in the motion stages. But there was a similar suit brought somewhere in the South, I'm going to say Georgia, South Carolina, uh, somewhere down there, uh, where a local legislature kicked people off the Twitter account because they said bad things about them. And the court uh, held that because that official used her Twitter account to make official messages and discuss important things before her body, whether it was the city council or whatever she was on, uh, that it was a public forum and therefore she couldn't kick him out. Um, now, on the Trump side, he has told, the White House has told us that the things he says on Twitter are official presidential policies. So if, if our case in the South is any, any guide, um, maybe they have a, you know, maybe they have an interesting shot against the president. I don't know. I was pretty skeptical when I first heard about mm -hmm. it, but then the more you think about it, yeah, um, it's, it's either going to be your personal playground Twitter account or it's going to be the president speaking to its people account. And if it's the latter, why, why should he be able to take all his enemies and throw them off? Yeah, same, same thing. When I first heard about it, I said it's intriguing. And the question in my mind was that account not the POTUS account, but the other account, you know, was, is he a state actor? You know, is he actually using that as part of the government? Or, yeah, if, certainly if he's going to be doing it, you know, if it's one thing if he's tweeting about his family, you know, my son's birthday and things like that, if to a few people is one thing, but certainly if he's going to use that as a governmental organ, if you will, uh, certainly then it could very well be a constitutional issue and we ultimately have to see what happens. And my guess would be that if that would be that indeed he couldn't, uh, there'd be a First Amendment uh, issue here. Uh, I, if I would be his advisor or advisors, I would say just stop using this. You know, just you don't have to use this. The president doesn't. Certainly not to the extent that he's used it uh, would be really one fairly easy solution if that's the case. I mean, we've never seen this before, but uh, you know, we'll have to see what happens if the case goes to fruition. Great. Um, let me ask uh, one more question and then I, I'll uh, open it up. Uh, we talked about one kind of market failure, and that's the fake news discussion. There's another kind of, this is going to understate it drastically, but market failure arguably that's going on, uh, which is the proliferation online uh, and in, let's be generous and say new media, in new media spaces uh, of hate speech. Um, now, the doctrine of viewpoint neutrality places uh, limits certainly on the kind of bans that government can have uh, in regard to hate speech. It allows for regulation of hateful threats 
but at least in the modern doctrine, not of uh, viewpoints, even if they're deeply mm-hmm. racist. And we can think about the distinction in Virginia versus black, for instance, between a cross burning on a field, which is protected, and one on a lawn in retaliation for, mm-hmm. for fight earlier in the day, which is not. Now, given that this is a dilemma that's not going away, but that seems to be getting worse. Um, is there any, I'll ask the same question that I asked about fake news. Is there anything that government, um, media organizations um, uh, can do uh, to combat this uh, what, worrying rise? Uh, and uh, I'll put it in an um, understated way, mar- mar- increasing market failure of ideas. I think on, on the hate speech issue, there are, constitutional exceptions that, that apply. I mean, if the, speech, if the speech, speech incites imminent lawless action under Brandenburg, then, it's, then it can be banned. Um, the true threats doctrine um, is probably the closest you're going to go to get uh, people making threatening speech can get uh, prosecuted, and they have been. Um, racist speech, um, that's going to be hard. It's going to be hard to say you cannot express a racist view. Um, I just don't think that's going to pass muster. Now, of course, Facebook or Twitter or the New York Times or anybody else who has people commenting on their sites have varying standards of appropriateness, sometimes is the word they use, sometimes uh, whatever. Um, And... um, why, why, why not? Why aren't they using it? It's just that there's not always a there there to regulate. You know, you know what I mean? If Twitter isn't prepared to do it, um, and they're not looking like they're prepared to do it, and who's, gonna, who's going to? The only way to do it is to drive them out of business. I mean, just have enough people not subscribe to it as a protest to what's going on or turn off your Twitter accounts and, you know, there is one thing to say, you know, the bottom line is the bottom line because it would be very hard. I mean, you have the RAV case by the Supreme Court, you know, which invalidated the state law in Minnesota regarding hate speech. You know, Brandenburg is a pretty limited exception, and it really wouldn't necessarily wouldn't apply online. It's going to be pretty tough. And there are a lot of these comments and a lot of these sites out there. So uh, I wish also that had a magic wand, but... Uh, but I think it would be more incumbent on the big players to be pro- proactive. But again, they, have a, they face a situation if their metrics are so broad that others are sh- thrown off their sites or cannot comment, it affects their bottom line too because they are very much advertiser dependent. Another thing that advertisers may also not want to advertise um, as well on these sites. So you have to do it indirectly. You know, by that kind of pressure, it's like in the old days with broadcast television, um, people made a, you know, certain people didn't like a show for its content, go against the sponsors. You know, that may be the best shot to do it. I just want to ask one follow-up on this very interesting set of responses, that, which touches on something that Susan raised. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing, Susan identified, is uh, increased niche marketing. Now, one worry is that as subscribers, for instance, can drive... Uh, or pay for some of these sites to continue to exist. Um, you know, and you can think of media organizations that are targeting a niche market. Are you going to start to see some of this speech funded by those new means? And what do we do then? I mean, so the traditional move of 
a boycott. I guess I'm wondering, mm. what, what do we do <laughs> in yeah. those situations? I, I yeah. don't know that I have an answer. No, I'm I don't. No. Genuinely asking. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I actually didn't introduce myself. Uh, I'll do that quickly. I'm Corey <laughs> Bretscheider. I'm a professor of political science at Brown, but I'm currently visiting, uh, as I have in the past, at Fordham Law School teaching constitutional law and First Amendment. Uh, okay. Please, sir, in the back. Yes. This is a question for Mark. Uh, if Mario was here, he would, he might ask you this question about the Olympics and sports. Mm -hmm. You just talked about advertising and marketing and a global uh, event of the Olympics. Mm -hmm. What kind of thoughts would you like to share with us uh, since the Olympics does not happen every day, but it's happening tomorrow? Uh, happening now, as a matter of fact. Uh, uh, in terms of what, uh, broadcasting, in terms of speech, or? Uh, well, why don't I let you use your imagination and talk about global advertising dollars, Samsung, oh, uh, global sponsorship Panasonic, issues. and yeah. also the, uh, let's say, NBC, who paid, what did they pay for the Olympics, $8 billion or yeah. something? Yeah, 1.5 on this one. 1.5? On this one ahead. alone. They have a package for the right. next Yeah, okay, so go many. ahead. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the Olympics obviously are an international federation, and the key thing with many sports federations are they're not headquartered in the United States. Their jurisdiction in the United States is limited, and that's for a good reason. They don't like U.S. courts. They don't want to be scrutinized in the United States. So their laws are generally Swiss laws, whatever they may be, whether it's speech issues, whether it's other issues, eligibility issues, ultimately the arbitrations and they go to the Swiss courts. Now, as far as the sponsorship is concerned, you know, they sign contracts, you know, it's within the um, terms of the contract, how, what kind of um, termination clauses there may be if, in case there is um, improper conduct, you know, in the running of the Olympics. Um, but in terms of, say, free speech, uh, certainly if an athlete wishes to demonstrate their uh, displeasure in some respect on the Olympics, you know, there are sanctions that the IOC can do. And one, the U.S. courts don't have the jurisdiction. And two, every athlete who competes in the Olympics agrees to some significant limitations on, on uh, privacy and also pretty much agrees on their system of dispute resolution. Uh, so the U.S. courts have not been involved in international sports since a 1980 case involving the boycott uh, of um, the Moscow Olympics. Since then, pretty much the U.S. Olympic Committee cedes arbitrations, and certainly on the international side it does as well. Uh, I think your question will be more interesting even regarding FIFA, because there have been uh, corruption investigations and convictions of FIFA members, and what effect that's going to have. But again, that's more not directly constitutional or speech-oriented because it, it involving, involving an international um, private federation. Okay, who'd like to ask the next question? Alex? Um, my question's for Professor, um, Professor Bretschneider and Susan. Uh, you mentioned earlier, and kind of one of the themes that's come through today is the idea of the marketplace of ideas as a justification for broad um, speech protections either for private citizens or the press. And in this day and age where we have been, you know, spending the day talking about fake news or the fact that because there's this 
diversity in cable or different media organizations and this access to information is so broad, like does the marketplace of ideas exist anymore and can that be a basis for us when you can either, you know, with algorithms or the sources that you go to kind of construct your own reality and not have the same kind of interactions that existed in that um, era. I've been playing moderator, so now I'll just drop that one. <laughs> I mean, I think we are in a world in which we've taken the view of John Stuart Mill, which says that the marketplace of ideas will clear. I mean, he didn't exactly, Holmes took that notion from, from Mill, and that was the basic idea, that over time you have ideas clashing, good and bad, and the good ones are going to win out. And the modern dilemma that we've been talking about for the past hour is that that just doesn't always happen. So that, you know, that's a, a moment that you have to think about. Now, how do you not throw it all out, just get rid of the entire doctrine or the entire... Uh, and so I think that's why we have to start, that's what we were trying to do, is to try to find modes of regulation that don't necessarily involve restrictions on viewpoint, but that might try to correct the market. Now that, I agree with Susan, has dangers to it, but I think we have to start to get creative about it. Now, one thing I, I didn't say, but I guess I'll, I'll just raise is, you know, the internet providers charge us money based on a scarcity theory of spectrum. So I think that might be one hook for starting to require, maybe not the regulation of these organizations themselves, but of Google, of uh, Time Warner, or whoever provides your ISP, and maybe even the kind of meta sites that are providing news. And I think the kind of proposal, I guess, that I was asking about, I'm now trying to defend, could be justified on something like the red lion scarcity theory. That, you know, the spectrum isn't unlimited, and it's not regulation of the organization, it's not regulation of a viewpoint, but if they don't, on their own, start to propose something like labeling, uh, educating their own viewers, including young people, about what they're seeing, I think there is a justification for uh, regulation coming either from Congress or from, uh, from the FCC that would require something like labeling and maybe even a ranking of organizations uh, in the way that Facebook is now trying to, to think about. But I don't, I just don't think that we can do nothing at this stage given how bad things have gotten. Well, what about, why can't we try to put some control back into the, the viewer, the reader? Mm. I mean, you could imagine a world where you sign on to Facebook and said, I don't want to receive anything from Russia, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Why would it be so hard for them to do that? Why can't I control what I want to read, what I want to see? And if I don't want Russians telling me how to vote in the election, I can just say, I don't want to hear anything from that country. Now, I'm not sure that's, that's not a great testament to the marketplace of ideas, but with all this technology, we, we should be able to come up with creative solutions rather than squashing the journalists or the speakers, how we seek to choose. I mean, when I see junk stuff on the internet, I don't read it. Um, I, I'm making that self-selection, but maybe I have a more sophisticated um, knowledge and background in journalism uh, than some of the readers or younger yeah, readers. Yeah, the worry do. is the 18-year-old kid who is voting for the first time, mm -hmm. who really doesn't mm -hmm. know anything about the process and so and really likes the pope yeah exactly <laughs> and the education that they're receiving is just from their news yeah. feed now it could be that these organizations are going to self-regulate and mm -hmm. then what we'll see in the next few months are proposals like the motion picture one that you mm -hmm. suggested which i believe is voluntary yeah. right? 
And, you know, maybe that will correct it. But if we don't, I think then, you know, that is the role of government is to come in and to do market failure correction. Now, what you can't do, I think, rightly, and is a drastic and awful solution, would be coming in and telling news organizations what to write. Mm -hmm. And so we want to avoid that. But I think something like the sort of regulation of Facebook, of Google, that requires labeling, that requires a sort of, yeah, taking a stand about what's true and what's false, mm -hmm. at least in a very basic sense, that if, if government doesn't do that, then I think we could just lose control over the information that's out there. The whole regime rests on, you know, we have a past where there just wasn't that much information. You know, it, it wasn't as vast anyway as it is now. And there was a way of sort of, the market was working, I think, better than it, it does now. Now, that's not saying we should go back to a world where we punish organizations for criticizing the president. That's, mm -hmm. you know, there are reasons why we have the doctrine of viewpoint neutrality, but there are non-viewpoint modes of regulation. The fairness doctrine isn't it, but I think it could serve as a kind of inspiration for non-viewpoint-based forms of regulation. Hey, so my question is more about kind of the, the lesser trodden path of the internet. So like, say, so like in websites that are essentially solely dedicated to like spewing hate, spe hate speech. So things like, um, like Daily Stormer where there's this kind of reaction to them where they are getting kind of kicked out of the marketplace of ideas, but then they get pushed into areas that are not so readily like available to kind of like push them further out. So like, for example, Daily Stormer, they ended up getting, they were a bunch of, um, domain name registers that wouldn't do business with them, but then they found someone in Russia who would. Um, is there any kind of like solution like that's foreseeable for these kind of, these like actors that are kind of getting further and further away from the reaches of, I guess, the, the marketplace of ideas and the, the government? Have you heard of the deep web? How many of you heard of the deep web? Okay. Uh, how many of you at times have looked into the deep web? Okay, good, we're honest, okay. Yeah. There is a netherworld out there called the deep web. And these sites and illegal sites and some Bitcoin sites and sites to buy drugs are found on the deep web. Most of that doesn't come from the United States. It could come from various other countries. Um, I have not researched this in detail, but you have an alternate universe. You have many alternate universes on the web. I mean, just on the simple side, reading Fox News versus MSNBC, there are some different universes there. But you multiply that, and you multiply that potentially with illegal activity or with torrents. I forgot about that issue. Tons of torrents on the deep web. For those of you who don't know, those are ways to get copyrighted information and download them uh, in infringing manners. As long as that exists, you know, I wish I did have a solution because even if you get them out of the legitimate domain name setup, as you're saying, uh, even if you label them, they're going to be people that are going to find out once they go underground where they are. And that makes it even more difficult. I'm not even going to get to things like child porn sites on the uh, deep web and things like that. And that's additionally a problem. Don't have any idea of a solution.
I mean, one other kind of dimension of free speech law that's emerged recently that also I think might be of some use um, is the state, state speech doctrine. I mean, government can fund its own speech. And it could be that one way, aside from driving out actors or driving them underground, but to kind of combat the issues of fake news and the, the kind of racism that we're seeing increasingly online, is you know something like the BBC model, where you have a government-funded entity uh, or the PBS or NPR model that you know exhibits the kind of truth-telling characteristics that you want to see uh, and the deliberative aspects that you want to see from media organizations. Um, you know that's under fire too, unfortunately, mm -hmm. the public funding for these institutions. But that, I mean that is not a violation of the First Amendment. It's government, um, you know, funding speech. But I don't know. So that's another another thought. Well, let me just make one clarification. Not everything on the deep web is what I described it to be. There are aspects on the deep web. So uh, I don't want to create a situation where that's all. That's all there is on the deep web. But certainly, a lot of the deep web is composed of what I had mentioned. So uh, I was really interested about the um, labeling regulation option that was brought up. Uh, so one question I had have is. Um, and this is sort of for the whole panel, what, what sort of issues would there be with a government-imposed regulation for labeling where the government doesn't control the criteria for the labeling? It has the organization, the news organizations themselves have to apply their own labels based on their own standards. Uh, but it, just as sort of an anti-fraud or anti irresponsible reporting sort of regulation, something where if a news organization says that this is a, and this could be online or in the major news media, where, um, you know, this is true news, this can be believed, um, and they label it as news, <coughs> what would be the problem with a situation where it turns out that it wasn't real news, or it wasn't mm -hmm. vetted properly, or it was irresponsibly reported, <coughs> and you're now on a platform where you can cause some real damage with your words, um, sort of like these reasonable time, place, and manner restrictions where people can't yell bomb on a plane or fire in a theater. Uh, even if it's false speech, it's regulated because it can cause damage. So what would be the issue with having a regulation where organizations apply their own label and then if that label was shown to be in bad faith or grossly negligent, uh, where then you could have a cause of action for that type of damage. Sounds like defamation under a New York Times standard. It's a malice standard uh, of some sort uh, along those lines. Uh, again, be, I think a lot of proof issues. I mean, if you're talking about making a tort of some sort out of this um, kind of concept, uh, certainly viable, although I think the defamation example is a, is a somewhat of a pretty good analogy because it is not that easy for, for a public figure to win a defamation case, although, I mean, some would may disagree, but still have to prove the malice component, not just the falsity. So if you're talking about gross negligence, which is not quite malice, I get that, but still it is not just your regular breach of duty. Uh, it would be challenging, but it would be an interesting idea. And uh, just, just to follow up, um so defamation usually responds to particular people, right? Speech about certain persons. Yeah. What if we're talking about circumstances or situations that never happened or occurred where there isn't an actor that's targeted, but a certain um, state of the world? 
What do you mean, yeah. state of the world? So who would bring the suit? I guess that's I guess uh, a public interest organization might bring suit in a case where they say that, um, let's take the example with uh, supposed violence by certain minorities in the organization. If, if that wasn't proven to have actually occurred, but people are reporting on it just sort of to incite um, bias against those minorities, what would the, um, what kind of claim could you bring besides a defamation claim, I guess? I mean, the problem is we don't have a group defamation, yeah. a law of group defamation in the way that other countries do. I mean, if you were anywhere else in the world except for the United States, you could do exactly what you're saying. In fact, government just does that often. But because the First Amendment has this distinction that we were talking about earlier between generalized viewpoint and individualized threats and between individual defamation and group defamation, you can. And the, the idea, I think, is that we don't have a, a tort of group defamation because of the First Amendment limits on, with the idea that group defamation is a kind of idea. Now, that might be something that you're challenging, but it would require an upending of the, of the doctrine. Um, but, you know, it's unique to the United States, so maybe we need to rethink it. I mean, I, I think the thing that you're saying about individual defamation is very interesting, that you could sort of make it easier for individuals who are maligned by these fake web news websites to go after them. The problem is that you know, you're not talking about the New York Times or CBS who can afford to hire Susan Buckley or who has deep pockets. They, they're individuals often that are just out there. And, you know, what, what that suit does, I, I don't know. You know, you're, you're not going to get damages. Um, prior restraint, you might, might speak to that. That, you know, you're not going to get that. So, I don't, it's, you know, it's a morass of complicated issues. And I don't, I don't know how much the defamation the tort way of doing it was solved. Do you have any thoughts? Well, it, it's kind of like what happens with these responsible news organizations who do agree to abide by these, like Society of Professional Journalist Code or any of the other editor's codes, that um, in the cases that follow for the reporting of the false information, um, the plaintiffs use the codes as the hook to say, you promised to do X, this article violates X, therefore you're violating your own standards, and therefore uh, you should flunk as you would in any regular negligence case. Now, depending on whether you have a public figure as a plaintiff or not, uh, they are successful in using that uh, model because you don't have the malice problem. Um, you're using their lack of following their own guidelines, which in your analogy would be following their own you know, headings or whatever it was. Um, that it has been successful, but it doesn't work against um, in public figure contents. Do you think it would be effective against individuals as opposed to news organizations who are sort of doing this out? And would there be a way of using the threat of suit to? Well, I think we're seeing um, all over in the freelance journalist community that there's an awful lot of suits being filed. Mm. I mean, for for a long time people were somehow under the impression that things you said on the internet were not really, didn't really count. And then, mm. and then all of a sudden all the libel suits and other kinds of suits started, started coming. And it really hasn't been until the last 10 years that we've really started to see the wave. Um, but I don't know how I'm going to, unless it's, unless it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever platform I'm writing on that's gonna impose the, the standards, I don't know how we get there. 
and it's the Communications Decency Act mm. sort of discourages um, publishers on the internet from having any role in telling what its, yeah. um, um, its speakers can say, because if they step into that role, then they step into to potential liability. So it's, they are rewarded for saying, I'm not, yeah. I'm not setting any standards or telling any tales yeah. or telling you what to do. Yeah. So that's and that's what they wanted. They they wanted yeah. the. I think we got time for one more quick one, and then we're done. Thank you. I'm wondering if you could speak to the role of private platforms like Twitter, to use the presidential example, um, connected to the Columbia lawsuit, for example. Uh, if we have, you know, if it's state action, if there are First Amendment issues there, but they're a private platform. They're not. The White House's website. There, right. can they be yeah. compelled? What is the role that they should play? He's arguably violated their terms of service, but they've said they're not going to shut him down for that. So, if you could, if you could talk about that sort of state think, action, say private platform interface. Yeah, right? I think um, I think we have somebody from the Knight Foundation here, but they must have left. I'm. I hope I'm not misstating it. My impression is that the lawsuit is against the president. Um, Yes, everybody understands that Twitter is a private platform. It's not a state thing. It's not even his at POTUS thing, which might be a little bit different. It feels different to me. Now, that is the, the big issue in the lawsuit. Is there any, is there any state action? Um, and Twitter's like, people can kick off whoever they want. That's up to them. It's their Twitter account. We, we're just, we just provide... Uh, a, a lane for people to use. Uh, so that's why is the state action not the president's well, sitting that, there tweeting? That's the argument is if he has said and he has said and the White House has confirmed that this means of communication is his official way. Uh, it's the government talking to its citizens by this method. I mean, he has issued declarations. I I'm going to. Uh, the transgender uh, uh, in the military came directly out on Twitter. So the argument that the Knight Foundation is making is this has become the government, the, the government's, your, your way of speaking as a president. And if you're going to use that as your official way of speaking, then we have to, you, you have to be able to treat everybody equally and not kick people off. That's, that's their argument. I mean, it, has, oh, I'm sorry. It, ha it has it has raised a few eyebrows and has and has um, many defenders mm -hmm. as well. Uh, here's a kind of a law school professory way to look at it. It's kind of out, out in the left field or right field, depending on your view. Uh, in 1946, the Supreme Court ruled in a case called Marsh versus Alabama that a company town was took the imprimatur of a state actor. Uh, therefore, its ban on leaflets was unconstitutional under the First Amendment. The, the town claimed, we're not the state, we are the town of XYZ company. Maybe it's possible, given that there's some, like Twitter or, some, or Facebook, could have that imprimatur of something like the company town as a disseminator. I mean, it's obviously a long shot. You know, and some, something I'm not saying I would um, necessarily agree with, but one could argue that does something that ostensibly is private take on such a public function that ergo it takes on a state type of function? You know, a thought. 
I mean, another way to look at it is, you know, that the action is the president sitting there in the White House writing the thing. And, you know, it's as if somebody records that and then it goes out there into the world. You don't need to show that the recording device company mm -hmm. was a state actor yeah. or that there are even state employees that could have just been there filming. It's actually the action that's mm -hmm. the worst. I guess that's how I was thinking about it. I uh, understated, we still actually have about 10 more minutes um, uh, left. Um, I'll raise one more hypo, a, a kind of different kind of um, technology, um, intellectual property kind of uh, issue that connects also to media. I'm just looking at all the titles on the journals so hitting them all. But, um, and it's one that uh, another speaker brought up in a paper that he was giving yesterday. Uh, uh, Professor Selvain is thinking about this issue, which I was introduced to. There are some websites that, or apps that are going out there and doing the following thing, and I'm just interested how the red line sort of issues that we've talked about might or might not figure in. Uh, and they're saying, uh, if you take our app, say Facebook or uh, uh, um, Snapchat is doing this as well, we'll basically give you free internet access. And the way they do this is by saying that our app is designed to not cost you anything on your ISP. Uh, is that something that uh, if they're um, kind of out there offering this sort of access, there's any way to uh, regulate when it comes to uh, speech and the, what they're providing or not, um, given the theory that Spectrum is, is actually a public good that's, you know, enabled by the government or the FCC claims at least to be able to regulate? Or does that worry you both too? That that government would be intruding on what the companies will say are innovative ways of getting themselves out there um, and sort of bypassing the traditional uh, traditional ways. Could I respond with a question? Yeah. Are you talking about the spectrum allocated to the mobile phone band where the app comes from? Do you, can you help me? <laughs> yeah. So what you're referring to is the, the concept of zero rating. Right. Where, uh, a company will say, we will provide you access to the internet through our portal. Mm -hmm. uh, or, for instance, T-Mobile will say certain apps on uh, uh, through T-Mobile will not uh, count towards your data limit. So you can, if you want to go to Netflix on T-Mobile, that's free. If you go to any other website, we'll charge you. And the idea is uh, certain things will cost you, uh, others won't. It, and I guess you're asking, does that... Uh, create a free speech problem long term. But isn't that private? I mean, is that a decision made? I mean, the um, apps are not licensed, you know, and is the spectrum space directly connected with the FCC auctions of spectrum space that allow this to happen? So this, this is occurring uh, not in uh, the regulated spectrum right now, but it theoretically could extend to that if the FCC the chose to mm. yeah. switch over from you know, switch over ABC's spectrum to Wi-Fi, to more Wi-Fi related carriers. And it's a broad way of asking the question of whether or not these old arguments for limits on the fairness doctrine or whatever it was on the channels, now we're going to extend either to the existing spectrum or either, either to these sort of newfangled ways of getting websites, apps out there. The next question, I'm asking questions on this because the next question, because the red line said the spectrum was finite. You know, the AM spectrum was established in really 1927 and still goes on today pretty much. 
whereas the spectrum for mobility can expand in future years by you know, other FCC activity. I mean, certainly if it goes to 5G or the other spectrum auctions coming up, so is that the same kind of finite situation that one would think was the case in AM radio? So the short answer is yes, there is a finite amount. Mm -hmm. uh, and the truth is Google and all those other companies, ISPs, would be actually very happy to take over the spectrum that's currently left for radio and for television because those uh, frequencies are actually far better for carrying signals. And so they could carry more data for customers on those than mm -hmm. what Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. I don't think the spectrum is going to go away, though, and the FCC, no matter if it's Ajat Pai or whoever is going to be the chair, is going to say, by the way, let's scrap the spectrum. Although you have, you're on one thing, though, because the FCC has just um, standardized an approach for something called ATSC, the third generation or second generation of high-definition television, and when that happens, there will be a spectrum give, give back to the government, but that's not going to be for about five, six, seven years away. So that may open up that spectrum, and they may ease that argument. But again, that's just that was determined in those December rulemakings that you had the net neutrality stuff. They talked about this new form of HD or uh, TV coming onto the force. So you're going to hear about it in the next year. They start selling um, receivers with that format. Uh, I mean, I should say, as somebody who teaches First Amendment, it's it's also changing so fast, and the technology and these issues that we were learning about yesterday, it's just very hard to use the analogies of three networks to think about them, but we'll have no choice, I think, going forward. Uh, I have, uh, uh, we have about seven minutes. Um, I was gonna ask a pretty controversial question towards the end, uh, so we've got seven minutes left. Uh, we, we're talking about this sort of model uh, of Red Lion and the issue of scarcity and whether it applies now or not. And another area where scarcity was thought to apply is in the area of campaign finance rules, that there's a limited amount of resources out there for campaigns, and that's why, you, one theory of why you could allow regulation is because unlike instances of unlimited speech, limited resources have to be distributed, as Red Lion argued, uh, you know, with, with regulation in mind in order to care about basic fairness. And that, that was the justification of a lot of campaign finance reform. Now we have the Citizens United case, which seems to say not that, that you know, attention is unlimited, uh, resources are um, not necessarily limited when it comes to uh, campaigns. Uh, is, that a, is that another area where the court had a notion of limits that now maybe it needs to abandon? And, and I guess the Citizens United does move in that direction. How far does it go? Do you, did you want to think about that? Or, I know, Susan, that you've worked on some of these cases, so I also would I invite have. you to just say, you know, what you've done. I, no, no, we um, we represented um, uh, parties in the McConnell v. FEC and the Citizens United case itself, and to be um, forthcoming, um, we um, are on the First Amendment side of the case which um, most of my left-thinking friends think is, was the wrong side of the case. We were against the campaign finance regulation and uh, urged it was unconstitutional under the First Amendment. Do you want to just remind us of the facts of McConnell? Just people don't know. 
Well, it, McConnell um, challenged the, the, uh, the new McCain-Feingold Act, the BICRA, Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. And um, in, in the McConnell case, uh, notably uh, the first time around, um, the regulations and the statute were upheld. Um, years then passed and facts changed and we came up to Citizens United and the, and the issue in Citizens United was can corporations be banned from spending speech independently on federal election campaigns? In other words, the ban on corporate independent, independent spending was it consistent with the First Amendment? Um, back in Buckley versus Vallejo, which was the first case to consider the First Amendment in the context of campaign financing, one of, one of, the, one of the arguments that the government had made, saying we need to restrict people from spending money as to what we're going to put on lids, caps, so they can only spend so much. One of the, one of the rationales for putting caps on independent spending, as opposed to campaign <coughs> donations, was we should try to equalize voices. Um, everybody should have an equal voice in politics. The same rationale was offered when Congress, in the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, passed an, uh, an amendment called the Millionaire's Amendment, which says if you're a candidate running against a millionaire, you get to spend more money to try to equalize you with the millionaire. All these, both of these rationales were th thought to advance that people should have an e equal access to speech about elections. <clears throat> in Buckley versus Vallejo, back in 1976, the Supreme Court struck that down right away and said, the one thing the First Amendment isn't in the business of is equalizing voices. So this equalization rationale, we reject it. Uh, anybody can speech as speak as much as they want, and if rich people have more money to speak, that's the way it is. But we're not going to be in the business of saying how much speech you're allowed to do. So um, if it is true, as the court has now repeated again, that the equalization of voices is not a justification the First Amendment can tolerate, then I think that answers your question. Any last thoughts? Just a quickie. Uh, when the decision came down, I, I was not in favor of it because I've never been really comfortable with the idea of money equating speech. Uh, but let's uh, obviously the court spoke the way it did, and, and really the money aspect does equate speech as part of the extension of promoting one's views. Uh, but a lot of commentators said this would really pollute the system, the process, for better or worse. At least one thing in the crowdfunding era, I think we at least been able to see a greater equality in raising money because you know Bernie Sanders didn't have in his campaign the big money contributors. Most of his contributions came from uh, smaller contributors online, very effective online operation, and I suspect candidates in the future are going to use that more. So the question is really going to be, I mean, I'm personally not thrilled with the decision, but I'm not an expert in that area of First Amendment, but what will the long-term effects be? And they may not be as terrible as many people have said, although we'll have to see. Uh, I think we're out of time. Please join me in welcoming...
Fordham Intellectual Property Media and Entertainment Law Journal is a publication staffed by the students of Fordham Law School. Our faculty moderators are Professors Mark Patterson and Joel Reidenberg. Our Volume 28 Editor-in-Chief is Alex Kirk. Our Managing Editor is Matt Hershkowitz. Our audio mixing this week is by Patrick Ho. Special thanks to our symposium editor, Stephanie Grobe, to all of our moderators and panelists, and to everyone on IPLJ who helped make this event possible. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. If you liked what you heard, please rate us and give us a review. It lets us know how we're doing and really helps our visibility as we continue to grow year after year. For more information about Fordham IPLJ, please visit our website at www.fordhamiplj.org. You can follow us on Twitter at at Fordham IPLJ or on Facebook.com slash Fordham IPLJ. Additionally, you can support Fordham IPLJ and unlock exclusive bonus episodes by visiting Patreon.com slash Fordham IPLJ and becoming a patron for just $1. I'm your online editor, Christina Sauerborn. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.